That's where we will begin this morning. John chapter 18. Let's just read this, some of these verses together. Chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus has often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their own way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. O oh God, I ask for the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. I need your strength. I pray, O oh God, that you would have me to say what you would have me to say this morning. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. In our previous study, we compared and contrasted the two gardens, the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Eden. Two gardens in view, two different occasions, two different options, two different outcomes, and two different offerings. Now, as we go further in our study in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find Jesus, the Son of God, once again praying, preparing, and being patient. He was full of the Spirit. And then we find Judas, Iscariot, betraying, backstabbing, and breaking fellowship. Indeed, full of the devil. Two different gardens. Our focus, the Garden of Gethsemane, yet evil still present as we look at the majesty and mastery of Jesus Christ in the midst of all of this. First point for us this morning, his sovereignty over betrayal. Sovereignty over his betrayal. Judas, also who was betraying him, knew the place. Jesus has often, had often met there with his disciples. Judas together with this Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came with lanterns and torches and weapons. So let's look at this into some detail here. Well, John uses the present participle, which conveys the meaning 
who was betraying him or at this very moment betraying him. Now, Judas was described as the one who would betray Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, you remember uh, in the upper room, what you go do, do what you are going to do, go and do quickly. And Judas departed. And here he comes again on the scene. Judas Iscariot, who was betraying him at that very moment. The betrayer, as described, was at that moment betraying Jesus Christ. Judas knew where to find Jesus because Jesus went there often. Jesus and likely the disciples spent the night there on the Mount of Olives for several nights during this, uh, the Passion Week, as it is called, during the time around the Passover. Also, this word often may give us a hint that Jesus used the place to sleep frequently over the years. As he would go and sleep there, the disciples would go there. He would teach there as well. Luke 21, verse 37 tells us, During the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. So Jesus, not hiding, but making himself available. This was no fugitive of justice. This was no one who was uh, running from the law. He went out and made himself available to all who desired to find him. Ironic in a way that they found Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons on their part. Remember the Greeks that came as we studied? We wish, or sir, we wish to see Jesus. Here, these men are coming to see Jesus, to, to get him. For all the wrong reasons. Judas, influenced by Satan, betrayed Jesus where he once prayed with him. Uh, John 13, verse 27, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, go, go do quickly. So we have hard-hearted Judas leading a group of soldiers to seize Jesus Christ. An impressive force of men. A Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. A Roman cohort was one-tenth of a legion, usually 1,000 soldiers, yet sometimes a smaller posse, a couple hundred troops. Do we know exactly how many were there? No, but we can, uh, we can agree that it was a large group of men who were there. They did not want an insurrection. They did not want an uprising. They had seen this type of thing before. They wanted to keep their foot on the throat of the Jews where they were. They were not going to allow any kind of insurrection to take place. Now, how Pontius Pilate, um, the Roman soldiers, and Caiaphas, how they made this agreement is, is uncertain. Yet, the Romans did not want any noise. Especially with thousands and thousands and thousands of people around during this Passover time. Tensions were high. The Pharisees, the Sadducees were looking for Jesus. People were talking about Jesus. No doubt, 
they could be easily influenced to help uh, Caiaphas and his men, the, the Romans, Pilate and his men. So Caiaphas and Pilate were, uh, had cordial relationship, and they were working together here. So here we have Jews and Gentiles working together to arrest the Savior of the world who was innocent of any charge. There was no sin in him, nor would there be any deceit found in his mouth. These soldiers had lanterns, torches, and weapons. Well, we say soldiers with weapons, it makes perfect sense. Why did they need lanterns and torches? Well, listen to what Richard Phillips says. Since Passover always occurred at full moon, when there would be plenty of evening light, it is suggested that they expected to have to search for a hiding out or fleeing Jesus. Just think about that full moon. You can see a lot more in the full moon. It soon became obvious that unless Jesus gave himself up, any human weapon would be useless against him. End quote. So here they had torches, lanterns, weapons. To see better, sure. Full moon, didn't need them, but they had them anyway. But they were expecting, possibly, someone fleeing to find a hiding out, a person that was hiding out. But indeed, that's not what Jesus was doing. Not at all. Verse 18 tells us that it was cold. So torches would help keep warmth as well. Consider that. Consider when they, and I'm moving ahead here, but they apprehended Jesus. This was not like an arrest we see today. Oh, they put a coat over him. They put him in handcuffs and they walk and make sure you're warm, you're comfortable, we'll get you water, whatever it is. It was cold here, the Son of God, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they grabbed him, and when they did, you think they cared about if he was warm or cold? No. So let's think some more of this through. When Judas approached the chief priests, he let them know that on this very night, he could lead them to get Jesus. So they moved quickly. They had to. Passover was afoot. They needed to get things done and needed to get it done now. This was their opportunity, their golden opportunity. Even though it was the middle of the night and capital cases were not to be during the were to be during the day in Jewish law, oh, they just put that aside. Who cares about laws? And procedures and such? No, we just put that aside. We see this kind of thing all the time today. They could overlook these things in their minds. For an arrest to take place, the Sanhedrin had to be gathered, and then early in the morning, Pontius Pilate would have to be in agreement to meet with them in order for the death sentence to be approved. All of this done in haste, so that Jesus would be put to death before the Passover feast and unleavened bread and be done with that, and we're going to do what we normally do. Richard Phillips again reminds us, as they hurried, 
as these uh, hurried arrangements were made, Jesus was teaching his disciples one last time. So think about that. As they were uh, Judas and, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Roman soldiers, as this was being arranged, Jesus was praying. Jesus was teaching his disciples, knowing what was coming. One last time, committing them to the Father in prayer, then waiting for Judas to arrive with the soldiers as he prayed. So Jesus, going about his Father's business, teaching, praying, and waiting, while all chaos and conspiring was taking place with Judas and the rest. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, this is verse 4, by the way, whom do you seek? Judas led the way, identifying Jesus with a kiss. You know, Judas kiss, we know that phrase. I think there was even a heavy metal band one day that was called Judas kiss or something, or maybe a song, I don't know. Don't go look it up and listen to it, but. But Judas led the way, identifying Jesus with a kiss. He says, Judas says, whoever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him. Now, for them to kiss uh, at a time of greeting was a normal thing to do. The men to do in this culture. It was a sacred symbol, a, a kiss. Now let's try to put that in our context of close brothers in Christ that are very close. They'd come up, full hug, possibly, and embrace. Imagine that. Whoever I hug sees him. Judas, identifying Jesus with this kiss, as if Jesus was not going to identify himself. He was already there. He was out in the open. He was in control. Hundreds of men, very likely, veterans, hardened barbarians, many of them, ready with weapons. The name Judas Iscariot is one known by Christians. Imagine the early church. Imagine after this took place, maybe a year, two years, five years, and that name comes up around a time of fellowship in the early church with the Apostle Paul, whatever it may be. Imagine that, and generations early on recoiling with horror at the mention of this name, Judas Iscariot. And we know what that name means today as well. But Jesus was sovereign over his betrayal. Secondly, sovereign over his glory revealed. Sovereign over his glory that was revealed. Verse 5. When Jesus asked first, he said, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When they indicated who they were looking for, Jesus responded with, I am. Okay, he is in italics. It should be in italics in your translation. It is not there in the original Greek. 
Jesus says, I am. And we have seen this before in the Gospel of John, and we have seen this before in Exodus. It's, it's ego a me, I, I am. Jesus is revealing his deity here, his divine glory. Remember, he says, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And probably the most poignant of them all, before Abraham was born, I am. Similarly, what we find the Lord saying to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. I am. Again, Jesus, full control of the situation. John's goal, as it seems, is to help us to see that. In reality, Jesus was not seized. He gave himself up. He takes the initiative and asks the question, who do you seek? This must have been unexpected by the soldiers there. I mean, these were no wimpy little, little men. They were armed. They were ready. It was the middle of the night, late in the night. Some of them probably didn't even want to be there. Many of them were barbaric. This must have been unexpected, this question to be asked as they stood there with their weapons and torches. And Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with them. It was very clear which side of the fence Judas Iscariot was on and who he was standing with. It was not on the side of of Jesus, that's for sure. He chose this day whom he would serve. He said, I'm not going to stand with Jesus. I'm going to stand against him. And some would be so hard on Judas. But some of you here today, even this morning, stand with Judas Iscariot. Who would betray Jesus. If you reject Jesus Christ. Even this moment, at this day, you are saying, I stand with Judas Iscariot. We've seen the memes. We've seen the phrases. I stand with so-and-so country. I stand with this, or I stand with this procedure here, or whatever it is. If you're not standing with Jesus Christ, you are locking arms with Judas, the one who betrayed him, even the devil himself. The betrayer. Judas, the turncoat, the betrayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. The response of Jesus. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back or lurching backward and fell to the ground. Their response, which may seem austere by a stone-hearted hearer, the leaders of this pack these soldiers, did not give a command when he said this. Oh, here, here it is. Now let's seize him. Let's, let's, let's grab him. No, what happened? These tough guys were unable to stand. Lurching backward, falling to the ground. Think of that. Think of the most elite military forces in the world today. 
that we know. Think of uh, what they have to go through, what, what we're allowed to understand what they do and the missions that they go on. And sometimes they have to get people, they have to kill people. These are tough men. I knew a man one time, a young guy who was going to be into the Rangers. And it a, he told me, explain, the Army Rangers, and he was explaining the process. And you had to be mentally tough, you had to be physically tough. There was no wiggle room there. These men, at least the Roman men, did things to people that men who we would say the elites today couldn't even comprehend with torturing and beating people and putting them to death. These were hardened men, many of them. And when Jesus said, I am, they couldn't even stand. They fell back at his voice of what he said. Alexander McLaren says this. He says, I am inclined to think that here there was for a moment a little rendering of the veil of his flesh with an emission of some flash of the brightness that always tabernacled with him. And that was enough to prostrate a strange awe even these rude and insensitive men. When he said, I am, there was something that made them feel, this is one before whom violence covers abashed and in whose presence impurity has to hide its face. Jesus speaks briefly and these grown men, soldiers, fall to the ground and they could do nothing unless Jesus allowed it to happen. A reminder to these men who they were dealing with, the majesty and mastery of Jesus Christ over all things. As Colossians tells us, I'll just read it for you. Colossians 1:17 and following, He is before all things, and in Him, in Christ, all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first Place in everything. Verse 7 again. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. So he asked them twice, whom do you seek? And they answer him. Could it be that some of them were still on the ground? When Jesus asked the question the second time? Or patiently waiting for them to get up after they had fallen and he asked the question again? Consider what had been going on in the minds of these soldiers. He just asked the question, I couldn't even stand up. And here he is asking again, whom do you seek? Jesus, the Nazarene. He was sovereign over his betrayal, sovereign over his glory revealed, and he is sovereign over the protection of his people. Thirdly, sovereign over the protection of 
his people. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. You know, we've heard of the witness protection program, right? You've heard of that before? You know, someone does something, and I guess it's mafia related, I don't know, but they go into the witness protection program. They have a new name, a new everything, and they're supposedly protected. Doesn't always work out that way, does it? They find who they are, find them, and they, they get them. Well, Jesus has sovereign protection over his people. Nothing can happen to us unless he allows it. No one can come and take us away from him. So as he says to them, I told you I am he. So if you, if you seek me, let these go their way. Possibly some of these men still on the ground, getting up, scared, maybe even soiled. A man just spoke to, you, to them and they could not stand up. They fell over on the ground at the sound of his voice. Indeed, this was no ordinary day because this standing before them was no ordinary man. Jesus of Nazareth. Perhaps he asked twice to get them to admit twice that it was Jesus whom they were looking for. Then he gives them a royal command. Let them go. Sounds similar or familiar to what Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. John Calvin says, here we see the Son of God not only submits to death on his own accord, that by his obedience he may blot out our transgressions, but also how he discharges the office of a good shepherd in protecting his flock. Let them go their way. Perhaps the soldier's plan was to arrest all of the disciples as well. Do we think that they would just say, we're going to go get Jesus and the rest of them, that's okay? We'll just let them go? Well, no, the scripture tells us something different. I'll just read this verse for us. Uh, we may be covering this in our next sermon. We, we'll see. In, this, in Mark's account, chapter 14, verse 51, a young man was following him, following Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And we see that the, the disciples also would leave Jesus. They tried to make an arrest. Jesus, though, shows who's in charge. Verse 9 in fulfilling the word, or to fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. We have heard this time and time again. The Father gave to the Son a people, the covenant of redemption. Some try to promote the position that Jesus was only speaking about their protection bodily, right here, right now, in the garden, the particular disciples. Now, did he do that as well? Yes. But why would we think that that would be the only protection possible and, or applicable for this verse here, considering Jesus teaches elsewhere that he will not 
allow any of his people to be plucked out of his hand. John chapter 6, I'll just read this for you as well in verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And then in chapter 17, where we were not too long ago, verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So his sovereign protection over his people spiritually here. Were the disciples, however, ready to be arrested at this point in time and tortured? No. No, spiritually, clearly not. They slept in when Jesus said, stay awake. And Peter was out striking with a sword. Calvin says it well again, bringing, uh, about bringing their physical protection at this time together with their eternal protection. He says, the evangelist does not speak merely of their bodily life, but rather means that Christ, sparing them for a time, made provision for their eternal salvation. Let us consider how great their weakness was. What do we think they would have done if they had been brought to the test? And we could insert ourselves in there and ask the question, what would we have done if we were brought to the test? Indeed, here we see the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, perseverance of the saints once again. We see the doctrine of predestination, election, all over the place in Scripture. We have seen it in chapter 17. We see it uh, as we move forward in the gospel. When we have a high view of God and a low view of ourselves, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints should make perfect sense to us. The New Testament clearly speaks of Christ's promise to preserve the salvation of all who come to him in faith and repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And these are whom who receive everlasting life. And Christ intercedes for us, unending and ongoing, as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 7. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And remember what First Peter says, or what Peter says, rather, in First Peter. I'll read it for us. Chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. There is no way you will not persevere if you are a Christian this morning. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jude says toward the end of his epistle, with a praise, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, 
blameless and with great joy. The disciples could not keep themselves in their own strength. We cannot keep ourselves in our own strength. Matthew is clear in chapter 26, verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. If Jesus did not go after them after his resurrection, they would have stayed gone. It is only by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit preserving us, that we do not fall away also. Jesus is the one who lifts us up out of darkness into his marvelous light, intercedes for us in heaven, guarding and protecting and preserving us, seeing us through every trial, temptation, and ultimately bringing us home to glory. Just as he stood between the enemies, the enemies of him, the enemies of Christ and his disciples, as he stood between Judas and his, the men that were with him and the disciples who Jesus was protecting, now he stands with us against the enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus made himself available to be apprehended. The shepherd of the sheep was not caught. No, he was going to lay down his life for the sheep as a willing sacrifice. And indeed he did. He went to the cross, took the punishment we deserved, absorbed the wrath that we deserved, died on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for his people, for all those who God the Father gave to him. And if there's anyone here this morning who is not right with God this morning, by believing on his Son, Jesus Christ, you are standing with Judas Iscariot and standing with the devil himself. Choose this day whom you will serve. You can only get right with God by believing on his son, Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross, rose from the dead on the third day, conquering death. You must turn from your sin and turn to Christ, place in your faith completely in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And all of those given to Christ, he loses not one. Who do you seek this morning? As we consider communion, Who are you seeking? Sovereignty of God, sovereignty of Christ over his betrayal, sovereignty of Christ over his glory revealed, sovereignty over the protection of his people. We will pray, consider these things, and then we will 
consider the Lord's table this morning. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you that there is forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ. Thank you that the gospel call goes out to all, whoever would believe, as many who would turn from their sin and run to Jesus Christ, you will save. Lord, let it be that not one leave here today not knowing Jesus. And God, let it be that we can glean from these verses what we have studied this far how Jesus responded, what Jesus did, and how he is king over all. Let us, therefore, submit our lives to him fully and truly and consider these things as we go to the table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.